We are in the middle of a rapid-fire puddle of mud, completely inadequate ser- series on the big questions of life. On and, and we've talked about why God, why believe in God, why be a theist a couple weeks ago. And then we spent one single week on why follow Jesus and why, why we believe Jesus is the Son of God. And, and those, are, those are sermons that ought to be 15-week series. And so we're flying through this stuff, but we're trying to whet your appetite to want to know more. And today we're talking, talking about the topic of why Christianity. So just be just because there's a God and just because Jesus was revealed as God, it doesn't necessarily mean you got to jump on the Jesus train. So let's, we're going to talk about why, why you should jump on the Jesus train, why you should be a follower of Jesus. And I wanted to rehash real quickly just what we've done in brief uh, over the last few weeks. And in the, seri- in the question of why God, we started with the fact that there was a beginning and that nothing became everything, that there was nothing and then there was everything in an instant. And we talked a lot about Big Bang cosmology and the second law of thermodynamics, universal expansion, radiation afterglow, and so forth, and how these things show that time, space, and matter had a beginning, that Einstein's theories show that they're co-relative, which means they need one another, which led us to the conclusion that whatever was causal about this universe coming to an, into existence was something that had to be immaterial, because there was a moment when there was nothing, and nothing is what was called, it's what rocks dream about. It was, it was literally nothing. There was no time, there was no space, there was no matter. And out of that came everything in an instant. And so whatever caused that had to be immaterial and it had to be non-spatial, had to be outside of time. And, and the only causal possibility, the only noun that is causal that we can think of that, that doesn't exist in time, space, and matter is spiritual. It's a, it's a spirit. And so we believe a spirit created the universe and is outside of time, space, and matter, and that we talked about how naturalistic explanations fall short. That even the best theories in in, in neo Darwinism and naturalism they they talk about uh, biogenesis, and biogenesis just didn't have enough time to occur. And 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 we talked about some of the animal kingdom and how they had no evolutionary precursors. And there was there's kind of no theory that adds up to what we see, except this spiritual theory that theists believe in. And then finally, we talked about um, how this. This fall-shortedness, which is, I think, a word I kind of made up. I don't know. Can you just hyphenate anything and throw it on a screen and it counts? I don't know. But this fall-shortedness extends into metaphysics, which means it extends into what's existential, the the big questions of life about purpose and meaning and existence and consciousness and how, in my opinion, how naturalistic explanations of all this are completely unsatisfying, that you have to embrace determinism. You have to embrace that we are kind of flesh robots and meat sacks and there is no ultimate consummate purpose, nothing transcendent. And that, I found it all completely unsatisfying from a philosophical perspective. And then the second week when we talked about Jesus, we talked about how Christianity exploded into history, how there was no Christianity, and then all of a sudden there was Christianity, and it was taking over a huge portion of the known earth at the time. And we have to come up with theories as to why that happened. And, and in my opinion, the best theory is that the story is true. And we don't have time to go into that today, but we talked about how, how people were willing to die, crucified, filleted alive, dragged behind horses till they were dead, proclaiming that this Jesus was dead and then he was alive again. And in my opinion, that we talked about the minimal facts from Gary Habermas and Michael Kona and how there's six facts that have to be accounted for, and if they're not accounted for well, it, 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 it lends to the Christian case. And, so, um, and we also talked about how this story extends into metaphysics, how, how there's great satisfaction in the story of Jesus. In my opinion, purpose and meaning and consciousness and even deep questions on suffering and so forth are, are explained adequately by Christian theism. Now, again, I know, I know this is puddle of mud. Boom, there it's out there. It's, it's, it's a flood, and it's, it, it, it's, it's a lot to grasp. But that's going to be important as we talk about today, why get on the Jesus train, why be a Christian, is because there's these facts that have to be accounted for, 
And in my opinion, they are best accounted for in the Christian story. So, so let's talk about why Christianity. Now, I was hesitant to even put this word on the screen in a certain sense and try to def- explain it because first it has to be defined. And so many people have an already developed sense of what it means to be a Christian or what Christianity means. And, and if, you go, if you were to go out on the street and say, what does it mean to be Christian, you're going to get a thousand different answers. And so I don't want to jump in and say, hey, let's, let's embrace Christianity without defining exactly what we're talking about. And I got on some forums this week uh, that were asking the questions, what do you think of when you hear the word Christianity? What crosses your mind? And I, I scrolled through it and and there, in this particular forum, there were about 14 or 15 answers, and most of them were not positive towards Christians and the Christian worldview. They said things like, the world now sees the idiots rather than the founding ideals. The world, bigotry, racism, fear, ignorance, closed-mindedness, worldview, closed-minded worldview, dogma, useless traditions, meaningless creeds. This is, this is the world's view of what, it means, what the word Christianity means means. One person said it, it reminded them of the kindly man who came and played hymns on the piano during Sunday school. And that was about as nice as this forum got. It was just a nice memory of their childhood. One person said the biggest lie in the history of mankind. And another one just said this and showed Buddy Jesus. And if you don't know Buddy Jesus, it's the idea that Jesus is my homeboy. He hangs out with me and we're pals, right? Jesus is a friend, yeah. And this, this, is, this is what you get when you search online for what does it mean to be Christian or what does Christianity look like. And, and so I think it's important that we start to, we, talk, we, we parse out the word before we get to why, why follow the word. Why, be a, why follow Christianity if we don't define Christianity well? I have a, an acquaintance, Mary Jo Sharp, who wrote this book called Why I Still Believe. And then the tagline says, a former atheist reckoning with the bad reputation Christians give a good God. Christians have made a bad name for Jesus. It's the old Gandhi quote that says, I love, your, I love your Christ, I just don't like your Christians. And so when we say embrace Christianity, in some sense we're asking the world to join a group that they despise. And we have to be real careful to define it accurately, to say that everyone who's wear, worn the label Christian throughout history has not necessarily been a Christ follower. And so what is Christian? Let's, let's start with when we talk about what Christianity is, it might be helpful to start with some of the things that it is not. And Christianity is not a confession or a creed, although Christianity contains confessions and creeds that are important to the faith, and they certainly shape our personal confessions and our personal creeds. Christianity is not a political movement. A lot of people, when they hear the word Christian, they automatically think of politics. And it's not, it certainly affects your politics. It certainly affects what happens when you go to the voting booth, but it isn't a political movement. Christians are not the morality police. At least they're not supposed to be. It's not, it's not trying to f- force Christian morality on the world and making sure everybody around you conforms to a certain standard of morality or ethics. It's not a commitment to people in a building, and it's not a representation of culture. If you go to a Middle Eastern country and you say, what religion is America, what are they going to say? They're going to say Christian. They see the American culture as specifically tied to Christianity. And so it's not that either. And in all these cases, Christianity informs and, 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 and affects these categories in these areas. If you are a Christian, it, it, there's probably a community that you're connected with, that, whether they have a building or not a building. So in all these areas, Christ, Christianity gets in there and makes a difference. It, it invades and affects culture, but there's people from all over the world in all kinds of cultures that follow the name of Jesus. 
And so these are things that Christianity is not that pe- people kind of label in their heads. But let's, let's talk about what Christianity is. And I'm going to start in Scripture in the, in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is kind of the story of the early church. And so after Jesus died and after Jesus was resurrected, then the book of Acts is kind of the next steps. What happened after those moments? And in Acts chapter 11, what we find is that men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch, which you might recognize Antioch from uh, Monty Python's Holy Grail because it was the holy hand grenade of Antioch that destroyed the killer rabbit. But they went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks. And in, in, in the Greek, this word Greeks actually is, is, is the Hellenists. And the Hellenists were the, the Jews of the diaspora, which means they were the Jews who had been scattered throughout the world. So they were, Jew, they were Jewish Greek people mixed with pagan Greeks. And so this is, this is who these missionaries were going to reach, was Jews who had left Jerusalem and the people who followed all, all the ancient religions and worshipped Zeus and, and Apollo and, and so forth. And so they're going there. And it says, uh, they told them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And so as we, as we see the word Lord through these next few passages, they're talking about Jesus. So they went to Antioch to tell them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And it says, the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And that's, that's the part I want to point out real quick, is, is that these people, these, these Hellenists and Greek mythologists were converted to Christianity, and, and that what that conversion looked like is they, they believed, and this is the Greek word pistos, which we've talked about in here quite a bit, uh, it's the idea of placing your trust in something. It's giving yourself over to something. So they went and preached in, in, in Antioch, and a bunch of people started placing their trust in Jesus and following him. And it said, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch, and when he arrived, he saw what the grace of God had done. He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And I want to point out this. Again, it's, it's talking about people who became true to the Lord, and it says they were brought to the Lord. And so as we start to define Christian, the, the reason this is important is, as you're going to see in the, in, at the end of this little passage, it says Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And here's the, point, here's the part I really wanted to point out to you. It says, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And so what you've got is you've got all these good God-fearing Jewish people who are converting to Christianity and, and following Jesus. And they're going out into the rest of the world to tell people about Jesus. And those people are starting to embrace this story. We talked last week about the explosion of Christianity that occurred all over, all over the planet. And this is what's going on. And it says here, and these two words are important. It says, disciples were called Christians. And in the Jewish context, this word disciples had a totally different meaning than what we think. We think of the 12 disciples at the Last Supper sitting around a table, and we, we, we specifically categorize them as the 12 people who were with Jesus all the time. But that's not what this word means here. The disciples are, in, in Jewish culture, if a rabbi wanted you as his disciple, he would come to you and invite you to be his follower, Right? And you would become his disciple. And so rabbis all over the country, all over the world, had disciples in this Jewish context. And they would follow the rabbi and learn from the rabbi and embrace the teachings of the rabbi. And so up until this time, Christianity was primarily a Jewish-centered movement following the rabbi Jesus. And now what we have is these, these disciples of the rabbi, are, people all over the world are becoming followers of the rabbi, and now they're calling them a different name. 
The Greeks, the Hellenists, are calling them something else. They don't call them disciples now in the Jewish context. They're calling them something outside of that, which is Christians. And you kind of, you kind of see this in the life of Jesus. When it's, if, if you'll read in your Bibles, there will be subheadings that aren't actually in the Scriptures, but they're in your Bible. And this is one that says, Jesus called his disciples. And what you find is a story where Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee. You see two guys, Simon Peter and their brother Andrew, and they're casting a net into the lake because they were fishermen. And Jesus says to them, come follow me. So the rabbi says to him, them, come be my disciples. These are not educated men who have, have been through any kind of seminary or had theological training. He goes to fishermen. He says, come follow me. And what does it say they do? It says they immediately left their nets and followed him. Followed him being the operative word is he was looking for disciples and he found people who would follow him. Going from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, they were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them and immediately left the boat and their father and followed him. And here we see this same expression, they followed him. And so you've got disciples that are following Jesus, and eventually you get to the point where there's crowds and crowds of people doing this, that he's going around healing people and, and touching, you know, touching people's blind eyes and speaking in, in a way to the religious leaders that nobody ever spoke. And people get on board with this Jesus train. They're, 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 they're leaving the station. They're getting, getting in and moving on. And all kinds of things happen where some people leave and some people go, and he has these massive crowds that follow him. But I think as we talk about Christianity, it's important that we parse out the word a little bit. And let's, so let's just, in the English, talk about what it means, and then this will all hopefully tie together. So in, in, we, we talked about morphemes a couple weeks week ago because somebody asked a question. Uh, I don't even remember the word, but anybody remember the word by any chance? Grammar. grammar. Yeah, why is grammar spelled A-R instead of E-R? Because, it's because there's no addition to it. It's a morpheme of itself. So a morpheme is the smallest part of a word that can't be diminished any further. So in runner, run is a morpheme, er is a morpheme, and the er turns the run into a noun, right? It turns a verb into a noun. And so in Christianity, you have three morphemes in this, wor in this word, Christ, Ian, and Itty. And we're going to talk about each of those because once we see all of them, it's going to tie together quite nicely. And the first is Christ, and in Christos in the Greek. And in the Greek, when they said Christ, it wasn't a last name. People say Jesus Christ, and they think of it as like a last name. It was a, it was a title, and it means the anointed one. And the anointed one means king, because in the old days, when a person would become king, part of the ceremony to make them king was pouring olive oil over their heads. And so the Jews were, were expecting the Messiah. They were expecting to come in and change everything. And so they described the Messiah as the Christ, the anointed one, the one who would have oil poured over his head. And that's where you get the root Christ. And then when you add Christian, when you make the word Christian, the Ian means belonging to, originating from, or being like. So if we use the word draconian, what does draconian mean, you think? Like a dragon, or belonging to the dragon, or originating from the dragon. So the Ian gives an attachment to the thing. It makes something attached to it. So a Christian is one who is attached to, originating from, belonging to Christ, the anointed one. And then the itty, the morpheme itty means the state of. So in vulnerability, what does vulnerability mean? The state of being vulnerable. So when you take Ian and Itty put together, you see the state of originating from or the state of being attached to whatever the root is. So when we put all this together, what do we come up with? What does it mean, Christianity? Anybody want to throw something out there? Yeah, 
the state of originating from the anointing, anointed one, from the king, the state of being like the king. That's what Christianity means. It doesn't necessarily mean anything as far as a confession or a creed or politics or the morality police or all those things. It means I am being shaped, conformed into the image of the anointed one. That's what Christianity is, and that's what, that's what we're talking about getting on board with today. And it affects all those things, but it starts with a person. The crowds would follow a person, and the person would affect the creeds. The person would affect the politics. The person would affect the morality. The person was the object of it. The rest of it was peripheral. And so it's the state of being or belonging to the king. So I really don't have much for you today on why do this thing, because honestly, I think it's axiomatic and a no-brainer. So when I say A plus B equals C, I think this, we've talked about how you can't have mathematical certainty about Jesus or God or theism in here, but I think there's some, some kind of laws of logic that work out here in our favor as far as being a Christian once you establish A and B, where A is that there is a personal God, which we talked about in week one, and B is that this God is revealed in Jesus, then what does C look like? What is the response? If there's a personal God revealed in Jesus, if the Christ story is true, what does that require from us? What does that mean from us? And I called it the ultimate, easiest, hardest, most wonderful, brutal, no-brainer. It's totally logical. It means this thing is hard and it's crazy easy. It, it basically means you have to give up everything, which turns out to be nothing, to obtain everything. Sounds pretty kooky, but when we talk about C being shalom for everything... So we've, we've talked about the Hebrew word shalom in here, and shalom is, is basically all the puzzle parts coming together. It's, it's, it, it, technically, literally, it means peace, but it, it's, it's far more expansive than that. It means everything in your life is as it should be. All the pieces move into place. The puzzle can be seen, and it looks good. And it's joy, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, all these things that God wants to put into our lives in exchange for us giving up our lives completely. And so it's, it's hard, and it's easy. It's wonderful, and it's brutal. It's the way of the cross. The way of the cross is death, a horrendous, torturous death, in exchange for being king of the universe. It means laying down your life so that you may have true life. And so when I say A plus B equals C, I'm talking about what my friend said recently, that if the Christ story is real, what else could possibly matter? When I say A plus B plus C, what I, what I mean is the universe seems to indicate that there is a, a thoughtful creator behind it. And that thoughtful creator was, history seems to indicate, Jesus, God in the flesh. And if A plus B is true, then C, the right response is to be on your knees before this Jesus saying, here I am, take me. And it, it's just, it just makes sense. Any other option seems to be inadequate to me. So there's... There's no real push for why you should be a Christian today as far as laying out the facts and expecting you to follow, anything like that. It's just to say, if this story is true, which we touched on inadequately, I admit, over the last couple of weeks, but if it's true, the right response is a big divine yes. It's a surrender to this story. It's a surrender to the narrative. And Jesus seems to indicate this throughout Scripture. In his teachings, he says things like this. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then his joy went and sold what? All he had and bought that field. 
He found the treasure that was worth sacrificing everything else for. And Jesus says that's what the kingdom of God is like. And again, it says the kingdom of God is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. And that's what you see here. It's selling everything. It's selling all you have. It's giving up your life. You're no longer in charge. You're no longer the big decision maker. Somebody else is in charge of those things. And in exchange for that, you get everything life could possibly be in the best of ways. You give up, you die in order to live. Somebody came to Jesus and said, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus, man, he didn't, he didn't sugarcoat things a lot of times. He says, he says, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So somebody comes to Jesus and says, I want to be your follower. And Jesus says, have you really thought this thing through, dude? He says, because if you're going to follow me, you no longer have a home. Not here anyway. It's going to be somewhere else. Life's going to be hard. We, we hear all the time that God loves you and has an excellent plan for your life or a wonderful plan for your life, and that skirts around passages like this. Yes, it's a wonderful plan for your life as a whole, eternal, but it doesn't mean everything in this world is easy. It's easy and hard. It's wonderful and brutal. Another man, he's told to follow him. He said, follow me, but the man replied, Lord, let me first go bury my father, which scholars tend to believe his father was dying and he was waiting for the man to pass away so that he could sell off the, you know, gain the inheritance and then move on with life. And Jesus, again, not sugarcoating things, he says, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Jesus severed every tie we have, all the stuff that we think is important, even, even to the, even to the, to the he, he talks about the word of God cutting deep into the bones all the way to the marrow. It means even these relationships that are godly, that are wonderful, are nothing compared to the kingdom of God. He says, going and bearing your father is nothing compared to following me. One guy says, I'll follow you, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. This seems like a pretty reasonable request to me. It seems like a Jesus kind of request, but Jesus says, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for, the ser- for service in the kingdom of God. Now, I don't think this means that Jesus didn't want him to go say goodbye to his family, but I think he's making a comparison here between the life that we strive for the life that we want that we desire so so terribly and what real life looks like and acquiring real life means it doesn't mean severing your relationships with family and friends but it means giving up rights means i am no longer mine what i thought was important is no longer important you're the king you're the you're the anointed one i am of the anointed one says, the crowds followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And late in the afternoon, the 12 came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we're in a remote place here. Now, this, this is a passage that we, we jump right to the miracle. Jesus feeds 5,000 people with a, cup, a few loaves of bread and some fish. And we say, wow, Jesus was God. But what we don't recognize in this passage is that thousands of people were following Jesus and forgot to bring lunch. Think, think, think about this. If I, man, if I go to the zoo with my family, we pack a stroller and I, we could survive in a bunker for a month on the food that we throw in the bottom of a stroller, right? People, say, people were seeing Jesus, were saying, I'm going. I'm going. What, I, I, food will take care of itself. The stuff that we, we strive for, the stuff that we believe sustains us, the crowd was saying, when they saw Jesus, they said, meh, it'll take care of itself. I see Jesus. And then we see 
Jesus saying this, he says, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body or what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Because this fits nicely on a bumper sticker, we don't think of the implications. We think, oh, seek, seek God first. Well, that sounds swell. But he's saying, don't even worry about food or drink or clothing in comparison to me. It says life is worth more. And in, this, in the Greek, it's the word suke, which is where we get psyche. It means your soul. It says your soul is worth so much more than these things. That's why you should follow. A plus B equals C. God that was revealed in Jesus is worth everything. It's worth laying down your whole life. So when we talk about what's it like, we're talking about the state of belonging to the anointed one. We're talking about the state of belonging to the king. And I want to point out that yes necessitates no. When you say yes to one thing, you're naturally saying no to another. If I decide to work at the new building in progress, I'm not spending time on my sermon that day. If I go to watch my kids play soccer camp, I'm not hanging out with my friend Bill DeGoyer and watching Broncos games that night. It's just, it's just the reality that saying yes means saying no, and it always has. And you see that in these passages where he calls the disciples. So, so we, we saw this part where it says, at once they left their nets and followed him, and we, we define being a disciple as following him, but we missed that part about them leaving their nets behind. And the same thing here. It says they left their boat and their father and followed him. At once they left their nets. Saying yes meant saying no to something. Same here. Saying yes to Jesus and following him meant leaving their lives behind and no longer being the professional fishermen that they were before. No, no longer hanging in a, out in a boat with their father and taking on the family business, which seems like a pretty good deal. Seems like a pretty big deal. But saying yes always means no. And so when we talk about what it means to be Christian, we're talking about taking the wide path instead, I'm, I'm sorry, the narrow path instead of the wide. We're saying no to the wide path and yes to the narrow. You know, people, people kind of make fun of Christians. They say, well, he had his come to Jesus moment. And now he's following the narrow path. And Jesus seems to indicate that a whole lot of people in the world just follow a path that doesn't lead to good places. And I'm not talking about heaven or hell today. I'm just talking about people go their own way, do their own thing, fail to give credit where credit is due, and worship the creator of their souls and their lives and the one who gave them breath. And the majority of people go through their day without giving God a second thought. And if you're going to say yes to Jesus, it means letting go of what normal people do. It means confining your life, walking a narrow path. It means you go from being fixated to fixed. Fixated people are always looking for the next thing. They're always looking for the way to be happy, the way to be joyous, the way to make more money, the way to, the way to make more friends, the way to have more Instagram hits. It's, they're fixated. They're, they're looking for something that isn't satisfying them and never will satisfy them. But fixed people have found their anchor. It says, now all those existential questions I have about meaning and purpose and suffering and, and, and life and existence and consciousness, that those are all, now I have my center point. Now I have the thing that I'm looking at that's fixed, and I'm saying no to the scattered, trying to find it everywhere, and I'm saying yes to the source of life. A plus B equals C. It means going from me to him. It means my life is no longer my own. Scripture says you were bought with a price, the blood of Jesus. And it means you no longer think, what do I want? You no longer go down the path that you want to trod. But instead, you are looking for, you're looking for a trail to follow. I used to, I used to play uh, follow the leader with my friends uh, at Paoli Ski Resort. 
And my friends were kooks, and we almost killed ourselves a thousand times. But the goal was to get in the ski tracks of the person in front of you and follow those tracks wherever they went. And they would love to dart in. They were better skiers than me, so they would dart in and out of the trees and up over ramps. And, man, I just got pulverized. But my path was no longer my own. And this is kind of what this is talking about is you're looking for the tracks in front of you. You're looking for someone else to lead the way. You're laying down the right to blaze your own trail, and you're following the trail that God has set in front of you. And then finally, you move from me to them, because Jesus says the number one law is to love others as you love yourself. That life no longer is lived as, what do I want? What satisfies me? What, what do I enjoy? But you notice the person sitting next to you in the theater. You notice the person on the bus with you. You notice your neighbor across the street. And you start to hunger for their existential satisfaction as much as or more than your own. It means laying down this me-centered life that the average person lives that says, what do I want, what do I want, what do I want? And noticing him and noticing them. It's laying down me for him and them. So when we talk again about what it means to look at the state of belonging to the anointed one, there's this quote from Jack Kerouac. And Jack Kerouac was a famous uh, author and poet. And he says, one day I will find the right words and they will be simple. And he was a very, very much acclaimed writer. And I just love this quote because it's simple. It's a simple quote. And in some sense, finding Jesus is kind of like that. It's, it's, it brings peace to the chaos of all these words out there. How, how, do I, how do I get down to this simplicity? And Jesus is that simplicity. You know, Andrew... This morning, and this was just an off-the-cuff thing. We decided to sing a U2 song. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And, and uh, it says, I believe in kingdom come when all the colors will bleed into one. Yes, I'm still running. You broke the bonds and you loosened chains, carried the cross of my shame, of my shame. You know I believe it. And then what does it say? I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And I'm, 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 I'm confessing as a pastor. I'm like, do we want to say that in church? Like, do we want to say, Jesus, you did everything? You, you, you bore my shame, you carried the cross for me, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. That, something seems off about that. But something seems exactly perfect about it too because of this point is that we're talking about something that takes a moment and a lifetime. So when somebody decided, when, when, when he said to Peter and James, or James and John, he said, come follow me, in the moment, what did they do? They left their nets they said no to something in order to say yes to something, and they followed him. But then what did they do the next day? They followed him, and the next day, and the next. And it was a collection of moments that led to the end of their lives. And so, in some sense, this Jesus thing, the Jesus train that we jump on, it has all this existential satisfaction and joy and peace and shalom mixed into it. In some sense, it's a moment of saying yes. But in another sense, we still haven't found what we're looking for because this thing is lifelong. In some sense, we're not going to experience all that existential satisfaction in one moment, but it's going to be a series of moments. So when we say A plus B equals C, it's that God revealed himself in Jesus, and the, natural, the, the only correct response to that is a big divine yes. But it's a divine yes that is endless. It's not a just now, right here thing. It's a right here, right now, as I walk out the door, as I go to lunch, as I call my friends this afternoon, as I go to work tomorrow. It's a yes, 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 yes for the rest of your life. 